Once again, good morning, church family. Yesterday, I was praising the Lord for the weather outside. This morning, I'm still praising the Lord, this time especially for the weather inside. (laughs) And I'm glad that we can be here together this morning. I'm glad that we have the fortitude to come out to the early morning meetings. And for those listening online, you're forgiven and you're welcome to the service as well. And I want to walk you through where we've been thus far to give us a placeholder so we can go forward in our messages this morning, a message day and the rest of the week here. On our first message, we looked at the concept of genuine conversion comes from being convinced of the Word of God, feeling the conviction of its application in your life, and then yielding to that conviction, thus being converted. And that's what the early Christian church was built on, converted believers who were sold out for Jesus Christ. Then we noticed they didn't just stop there, they kept going. They didn't just have one mountaintop experience, they went through the discipline of daily word, uh, study of God's word, uh, fellowship together, and they grew the church because of their individual steadfast commitment to the message and to the mission that they had been entrusted with. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. We also noticed in our third presentation that there was a spirit of benevolence, of beneficence, of doing good for others that just springs forth from the newly converted person. And in the early church, there was a drift away from that, and we don't want to experience the same thing. We want to keep fresh that idea that there's an individual work for others that we need to do as part of our Christian duty, and it should be part of our experience just coming out of us, as we've noted that the attainment of the completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. It's a beautiful thought. Then yesterday we noticed that not only were they just simply doing good for others, they were preaching the word to others. The early Christian church was made up of individuals who would go out and win souls and preach the word wherever they went. We saw the dispersion uh, after the persecution of Stephen when they went everywhere preaching the word, yet the apostles were left behind in Jerusalem. And that was the method of the early church for spreading the gospel. It wasn't just hiring a pastor and praying and hoping and paying him to do the work, but every one of us was to be a missionary for Jesus Christ. And in the Seventh-day Adventist Church today, member should mean missionary. Amen? So we are all caught up now, yes? Now, going forward, we're going to see today how issues and difficulties, challenges, even doctrinal disputes were resolved in the early church, and certainly there are lessons for us in there today as well. But before we do any new study of God's word, we, of course, need to dedicate ourselves to him in prayer. So, Cliff, you would, please bow your head. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the rain outside. Thank you for the dry weather inside. And thank you that regardless, rain or shine, we know that you love us, that we have another day of life to serve you, and now we're coming to your word to learn of you. Lord, I would ask that you would fulfill in this moment the promise that you gave, that you would send the Holy Spirit to teach us all things. Lord, we don't want opinion today. We don't want discussion and debate. What we want is clarity from your word. So give us insight, give us wisdom, and help it not merely to be an intellectual study, but transform us into the people you want us to be to finish this work For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take our Bibles, if you would, please, and go to the book of Acts, as as has been our course ever since we've begun. 
We're learning first generation lessons for last generation believers here. And all through the book of Acts thus far, everything that we've discussed in our first morning messages basically happened within the context of Jewish believers. Now, of course, we mentioned Antioch where it went outside of that and the kind of hubbub that it mentioned, uh, that, it, that we saw how the believers uh, had Barnabas sent to them from the apostles to check up on what was going on because they heard about this. But from Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, the first seven chapters of Acts, basically the church was exclusively in Jerusalem among uh, those believers there, Jews, particularly those from Jerusalem. And of course, they, on the day of Pentecost, there were others and they spread out, but primarily the work was focused right there in Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Jesus had said. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 8, that's the outline that Jesus gave for the growth of the church. He intended it to begin in Jerusalem. He just didn't intend it to end in Jerusalem. Okay? Notice what he says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 to those disciples just before his departure. Jesus said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. They shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now we noticed, of course, as we've just said, that the Jerusalem section was basically chapters 1 through 7, but with the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, which of course, as you know, is good Seventh-day Adventist Bible scholars, that particular event in 34 AD brought to close the great time prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 in those 70 prophetic weeks or 490 years of probationary time for God's people in Israel. And it's no little wonder then that at that event, which closed that great prophetic timeline, there is a move now outside of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Again, we go to Acts chapter 8. Notice what it says in verse 1, that at that time, that is the stoning of Stephen, that marking a prophetic time, at that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except, notably, the apostles. So yes, they did go to Judea and Samaria, but it wasn't necessarily under uh, voluntary circumstances. It was under a bit of duress with persecution. It was being scattered there, sent there by the hand of persecution. And we know that that was still not the main objective was to go there to win Gentiles because when you go to Acts chapter 11, look at verse 19. Again, this is review from yesterday, but I want to highlight some different points. Yes, they are sent from Jerusalem, but everywhere they go beyond Jerusalem, who are the people they're looking for? Jews. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to everyone. Is that what it says? No. Preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. That's why it's significant in verse 20, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Notice the men from Cyprus and Cyrene, not the ones from Jerusalem, had the crazy idea of preaching to everyone. who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. Okay? So, as we studied yesterday, some of those Christians who fled beyond Jerusalem took the great leap of preaching Jesus to the Hellenists in Antioch. Again, to you and me, that may seem like a rather common sense thing to do. Believers spread their faith to everyone they had access to, and that's how it should be. But, 
If you think about it in the light of Acts chapter 10, let's go there for a little bit. Let's look at Acts chapter 10. Just before that, this was the first specific encounter, at least recorded encounter, with a Gentile of any significance where an apostle had to speak outside of the Jewish context. And of course, that apostle was whom? Peter, right? Now, let's go to verse 9 and see Peter's willingness or not to go there. Verse 9 of Acts chapter 10. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheep bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, is this a naturally occurring dream that Peter is having? No, this is a supernatural vision he's been shown, right? God has a specific message. Peter is his prophetic messenger, and he sends this message to Peter in the representation of the sheet full of unclean animals, but with the command to rise, go kill, and eat, right? It's a bit of a parable in a vision. But Peter said, verse 14, not so, Lord. Now that's fascinating. We thought that Peter was cured, right? He used to be the one, no, Lord, you're not going to go. You're not going to wash my feet. And here he is, I'm not going to eat those animals, right? Now just pause right here. By the way, were the, were the laws about clean and unclean meats still in effect here after the cross? Yeah. Absolutely. And Peter sees this and he's aghast. Not so, Lord. Won't do it. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Verse 15, and a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed you must not call common. Now, we know the punchline to this story that it's not actually about eating animals, but it's about feeding people, right? That he was looking on a group of people, particularly the non-Jewish, the Gentiles, those pagans, however you want to call them, those non-believers, they were in the mind of even the apostles, unclean and common. And here God has to send a specific message a direct testimony to him saying, do not do that anymore. Stop doing that. Notice again, verse 16, this was done how many times? Three times. So I wonder if Peter denied him three times again. <laughs> not so, Lord, not so, Lord, not so, Lord. So he had been wrestling with this. But the Lord is trying to get an idea into his mind through a supernatural, visionary, prophetic experience. And of course, as the story continues, verse 17, now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision, which he had seen, meant, so clearly he understands the vision, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. What are the odds they just happened to be there at the time he's having these thoughts? Of course, this is not random circumstance. This is a divine appointment, right? So, and they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. Now look at verse 19. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him. So now he's had the vision three times over. He's thinking about the meaning of the vision and the voice that he heard. And then it says, while he was thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing. 
for I have sent them. If Peter had not had this vision, had not heard the voice of God saying, go with them, what would have happened when he gets the knock on the door, opens the door and sees this delegation there looking for him? He would have probably been the Peter from the housetop. Not so, I'm not doing it, right? But the Spirit says, look, Peter, get past that. Don't doubt, just obey. Trust and obey. Someone should write a song about that. So, verse 21, praise the Lord, Peter obeys. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear his words from you. Now, I don't know if you've ever caught that before, but Peter had a vision, but so did Cornelius. It's almost as as though the Lord intended that this was the time to start the groundwork for the work among the Gentiles. The Lord raises up Peter to receive this message, but he also raised up Cornelius to send the message. The Lord is the one orchestrating this experience. The Lord is the one calculating the timing. And he says, now it's time to go. You send your delegation, and Peter, when they come, you go with them. So that's exactly what happened. Goes on, then verse 23, he invited them in and lodged with them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them, and notice this, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think Peter took witnesses with him? Do you think there's going to be any questions about his little, you know, adventure with the Gentiles? Absolutely there would be. This is a big deal. We're sitting here thinking, I don't get it. You're, someone has invited you to go preach the gospel. It's very kind. You go to their house, you do it. But this was a paradigm-shifting, radical departure from what their cultural reservations have, their religious, their theological understanding had been up to that point. And it goes on, and we could read the whole thing, and it was just, it was fascinating. You know, Peter goes into the house, and Cornelius falls down, and Peter picks him up. He's just aghast. He's astonished. How can this be? But he does faithfully give the message that he's sent to give, and the Holy Spirit, now look at verse 44 of Acts chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed, now that's going to be a key idea. They were believing Jews, they were Christians from a Jewish background, but they were still, according to this text, of the what? Circumcision. They had a concept that if you believe in Jesus, that's great, and it's even acceptable for Gentiles to do so as long as they come through the avenue of becoming ceremonially Jewish first. You could be Christian, you just had to make sure you were Judeo-Christian. You understand? But here this man just has Peter go straight to his house, preach the gospel directly, and the Holy Spirit falls. They didn't see that coming. Notice what it says again. Verse 45. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they had heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter said, Can anyone forbid water? I mean, I think the assumption of Peter and these others, especially those of the circumcision, was, well, we'll see, we'll evaluate this thing, 
And then the Holy Spirit is poured out, and I said, well, we've preached the gospel. The Holy Spirit has poured out, just like we saw on the day of Pentecost on us. I can't think of a good argument to deny baptism anymore. It seems like the Lord himself has orchestrated this and sent and signified it by the Holy Spirit. So he asked the question, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? If God has put a seal of approval, who are we to hold up the process? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and they asked him to stay a few days. Now, it doesn't say whether they stayed the few days. That would be interesting. But Now, that was all of Acts chapter 10. Basically, the entirety of Acts chapter 10 is getting Peter to go to Cornelius and preach the word, and then there's the revelation that, man, you can be a Christian believer without having to be ceremonially Jewish first particularly that rite of circumcision, which was seen as the, the high point, the zenith demonstration of Judaism. Right? Now look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, here's our beautiful word, what is it? contended with him what is contention what does it mean to contend with someone argue debate fight they weren't necessarily all on board when these emissaries returned from their mission when peter came up to jerusalem those at the circumcision contended with him saying you went into uncircumcised men, and look at their issue isn't necessarily that even preach the gospel. They haven't even gotten that far. And did what? You ate with Gentiles? We need to talk about this. And the first section of Acts chapter 11 is Peter giving his explanation, retelling Acts chapter 10 to calm everybody down. So you have two chapters in the book of Acts that are almost entirely devoted, at least primarily devoted to trying to get the, even the apostles of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus who had followed him for three and a half years, to get them to preach the gospel directly to the Gentiles without going through the ceremonial rites and rituals, particularly circumcision first. That was a big deal. Now, my point is this. From the very beginning of the work among the Gentiles, there was a certain contingent of zealous Jews, referred to as those of the circumcision, right? Who were suspicious and disruptive of any work among the Gentiles. And you would think, oh, after Acts chapter 11, after the Holy Spirit is poured out, after Peter says so, then everything's going to be fine. Not so much. Everywhere the Apostle Paul went, because have you ever noticed this, by the way, and I think we're going to resolve this little mystery in a few minutes, but of all the apostles in the New Testament and listed in the book of Acts, which one was specifically called to be the minister to the Gentiles? The Apostle Paul. So why is Peter sent? No, no, I, I know we're going to have some good guesses. I think the Bible gives us a very clear answer for that in Acts chapter 3. I want you to be thinking about that. If Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, why was it so important? The right then and there, Peter was sent. Let's figure this out. 
By the way, the title of our message this morning is No Small Dispute. You're looking at how to resolve difficulties, particularly theological questions in the church family. In fact, if you go on, let's look at a few examples of this experience of Paul, because everywhere Paul went, some cadre of pious Jews would heckle him and even hunt him for his work among the Gentiles. It was hard enough preaching Jesus to the Gentiles, but you had the Jews on your heels tearing down everything you were doing. Paul's work was very, very hard. Let's look at just a few examples. Now, yesterday we looked at Antioch. That was the title of our message, Antioch. And we saw that there was a lay-driven church that was built not only preaching to the Jews, but also to those Gentiles. But let's go to Antioch now in Acts chapter 13. We're going to go to verse 44. Let's just start with verse 42 to give a little bit more context. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So at this point, they were... You know, Paul was going and preaching in the synagogue, and the Jews would hear it, some would be interested, and a good number would dismiss it and leave, but the Gentiles, what they heard, well, they drank it in, and they begged for him to come back, can you preach to us again next Sabbath? Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Now, verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with joy. (laughs) Is that what it says? No. They were filled with what? Envy. I mean, at first it was a novelty, okay, they were tolerating it, but when they see that the numbers are tipping far outside of the Jewish majority and they're about to become the minority in this group, they're like, man, the whole world is going to hear about this Jesus. Hmm. They were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, now listen to this speech. It's very short, but it's right to the point. It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Quick question. Don't have to be a psychologist. How do you think that went over? Not only did you tell them you are not worthy of everlasting life, you have been entrusted with the oracles of God, you chosen nation. But now we're taking what you have neglected, you have not appreciated, and we're giving it to those who are worthy. By the way, it's not like Jews are less worthy and Gentiles are more worthy. Anyone's worthy if they're willing to receive and humbly accept the word of God, right? Then, by the way, he backs it up with Scripture. Verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. He's like, now I'm doing what you all should have been doing, what we as a nation should have been doing for years. Now when the Gentiles, were 48, heard this, they were glad, I bet, and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed and the word of the lord was being spread throughout all the region but 
the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they would present the word of God and when the Jews would, some would accept and some would not, but when the Gentiles started accepting and they started outnumbering, that's when the envy kicked in, the persecution started and they would cast them out. That was with their expense. That was all in Antioch. Let's go now to Acts chapter 14, starting with verse 1. Let's go to Iconium. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. But, verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Everywhere they went, they'd have some success and they'd get hit with this prejudice, this brick wall, if you will. Staying in Acts chapter 14, let's go down to verse 19. Verse 19 says, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. Which I believe is Derby there. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up, look at this, went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. I'm sorry, that was before Derby. I was there in Lystra. But it's fascinating. And you've got to love Paul. He gets dragged out, stoned, miraculously revives. It's like, let me back at him. We're going to study his mindset and his ministry methodology a little later in the week, but I'm a fan of Paul. Did some good work. Anyway, but as you walk through from that experience with Cornelius and the difficulties you saw there in Acts 10 and 11, even getting the message to the Gentiles, and the experiences of Paul who's preaching to the Gentiles, and the hatred and envy and even murderous plots that raises up in these zealous Jews, it's little wonder that when we go to Acts chapter 15, that it opens with this line, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be what? Saved. You can't be saved. Friends, this is the textbook definition of a salvation issue. You can't be saved without this right. Therefore, verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Hmm. Let's break this down just a little bit. No small dissension and dispute. No small dispute. Yeah. It's a very kind way to write that, isn't it? They didn't have a small dispute. Oh, really? What did they have? <laughs> They had a big fight. Similar to Acts chapter 20, verses 12. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. <laughs> if someone's been brought back from there, you're greatly comforted. You're overjoyed. And here, they have no small dissension and dispute. That means they had a very big discussion, debate, argument, fight even. The matter at hand, and I want us to be very clear about 
I want to best understand what's asked, what it's talking about here. And I know it sounds a little strange to say, but the issue was not circumcision per se. Notice very carefully, the issue is not circumcision per se. The issue at hand was a question of whether converts must be circumcised to be saved, right? Now, could they be circumcised if they wanted to? Sure, they weren't looking to make, Paul and Barnabas weren't saying circumcision should be banned and no one should ever, under. no. But the contention was whether you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Could you be a member of the body of Christ without? Mandatory circumcision was the issue at hand, not circumcision itself. Do we understand the difference? So the contention was the policy, was the mandated circumcision. That was the question. So what was the solution? Now, they had tried to argue against Paul, and apparently that hadn't worked because he just moved on and win more souls. They had tried to kill Paul, and that didn't work. So this time, they have a new solution. Send Paul and Barnabas, along with local representative leaders, quote, to the apostles and brethren about this question. And again, where are the apostles and brethren? Jerusalem. By the way, who are the ones that asked those hard questions to Peter about his experience with Cornelius? You went in and ate with uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, the apostles and brethren. Think there's any chance that these brethren of the circumcision thought they had it in their favor going to Jerusalem? Sure. They say, you know what we need to do? You're out here in the field, Paul and Barnabas. You're getting all hyped up with these Gentiles and everything. We need the clear light of good Jewish thinking. Let's go back to Jerusalem and study this out among the apostles and brethren. They'll give us a clear answer. Thus the stage was set for the very first general conference session in Christian church history. It's what it was. We keep reading in the book of Acts, chapter 15. Let's go down to verse 6 now, upon the arrival to Jerusalem. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. So now they're in Jerusalem among the apostles and elders. These are leading men, the disciples of Jesus. These are the core folks. And notice verse 7. And when there had been much dispute. Friends, is it possible that even the apostles and leading brethren can have varying opinions and different understandings, contrasting insights on even Scripture itself and salvation issues? Yes. Even those who had walked and talked with Jesus were not clear on this issue. There was a legitimate concern. And we could go through that, by the way. There was a legitimate concern from the Jewish perspective. They looked around at the heathen and pagan cultures surrounding Judaism. They saw all kinds of abominations. Idolatry, immorality. I mean, all kinds of things that could not be brought into the Christian faith. And what they wanted to see, Mrs. White makes this clear. You can study it out in the book Acts of the Apostles. What they wanted to see from the Gentile converts was an evidence of sincerity. Fruit meet with repentance. And they thought, you know, the best way to do that is make them undergo circumcision. We had to go through it. They should too. The Bible says it's a lasting covenant, right? Throughout all your generations. And it will demonstrate 
that they're willing to take on the yoke of genuine Christian living. And so before we throw those Judaizers and those of the circumcision too far under the bus, I think they had some legitimate concerns about opening the floodgates to all the peoples around. They were genuinely concerned about this matter. I mean, sure, there was some cultural prejudice too. I'm not putting that aside. But it was a mix of legitimate and illegitimate concerns, national pride, but also sincere religious conviction. And it was a very difficult matter. The apostles and brothers themselves were not on the same page. So what happens? Verse 7 again, And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up. Now that's not unlike Peter, is it? But here I want you to know that Peter is not going to preach his own personal opinion. Because if it were up to Peter's own personal opinions and insights and feelings and prejudices, he would probably be in favor of the circumcised crowd. But that's not the testimony he gives this day because he has had a prophetic experience directly from the Lord. Notice what he says again in Acts chapter 15, verse 7. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Pause right there. How did these men and brethren know that that was what God had called them to do? Because of the Cornelius experience, right? Acts chapter 10 and 11. These are the very ones who ask him those pointed questions. He had to share his testimony about his prophetic insight, the vision and the dream and all the things that went with it, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the results of the work. They're the ones who had heard that way back then. So it's the same group that he's talking of. So Peter can say, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And he goes on and makes the application of it in this particular case. Verse 8, so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He said the difference is, yes, we're looking at the externals, but God alone can see the heart. And if he's sealed and signified their internals, what are we to judge their externals? He said there's sincere faith in those Gentiles, and the Lord himself has manifested his approval. Goes on in verse 9, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by what? Faith. This is a great works versus faith question of salvation. And he said the real circumcision, as Paul would later go on to explain, is not the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the what? The heart. They need to be cut to the heart to hear the word of God, to be convinced of it, to feel the weight of conviction, and yield in repentance. And that faith is the saving element, not the act of circumcision. And then he adds this, fascinatingly in verse 10. Now therefore, Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? What does he mean by that? Let's think about the concern. They're going to say, well, look, 
you're going to let all kinds of sins and transgression, iniquities, idolatries, immoralities flood into the church if you don't give them, if we don't see genuine evidence, if they don't go through this rite, as though going through that rite would purify them and make them a holy people. The Apostle Peter's point, I believe, seems pretty clear. Friends, we've all been circumcised, and it was we who killed Jesus. The act itself doesn't cleanse. We have evidence in our own history, in our own personal experience even. We couldn't bear the yoke. It didn't cleanse us. Why would we inflict that on them? This is a new Peter, friends. He's got new insights. The old Peter wouldn't be saying those things, but the Lord had spoken directly to him. But, it says in verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So there's only one manner of being saved, and it's by faith and not by works. There should be, he's basically making the argument, there should be no mandatory circumcision for any converts. Now, Verse 15, chapter 15, verse 12 then adds, Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. It's the first time in Acts chapter 7 they've been willing to listen. When it was in a local field church there, it was much dispute. No small dissension and dispute. When they came to Jerusalem, good morning, everyone, you want to do that? And they just burst out into, you know. But after Peter gives his testimony, shares what the spirit of prophecy has been revealed to him, the message from God, they quiet down, and now they're willing to at least hear what Paul and Barnabas have to say. And for the first time, Paul and Barnabas have a platform amongst the elders, the apostles, the brethren in Jerusalem to share what God has been doing through them among the Gentiles. Verse 13 adds, And afterward, and after they had become silent, James answered. By the way, you notice that Peter apparently is the spokesman of the early church, but James is the general conference president. You'll see that. It's his declaration that goes forward. This is a great passage. If anyone is confused about whether the leader of the church was Peter and there's any succession of leaders thereon, he was never the leader of the church. Christ has always been the head of the church and James was the leader amongst the people on earth. Peter was an apostle. He was a preacher. And he talked a lot. But James has the authority in this particular passage. Notice, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. So you notice here, I mean, this is fascinating. Peter has the prophetic authority to speak. And now James has the ecclesiastical authority to speak. Listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And notice this verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets, what? Agree. That's right. It's a Bible-based understanding. 
there had been contention about what does the Bible really say about this issue. But now Peter's experience, Peter's prophetic insights, his message from the Lord, clarifies and makes application of the scripture they had been wrestling with. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And he quotes here, beautiful passage. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Fascinating. He goes on. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge. Do you see that? He's about to make a ruling on this question. After everyone's had all their much discussion and debate, everyone's had said their piece, Peter stands up, gives his prophetic insight, Paul and Barnabas give all their experiences, and now James says, I've heard what was going on, what's been going on, therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them now, does it say, notice he does not say, therefore they can come in any old way. No. The legitimate concerns we need to address, but we don't need to add this burden to them. Do you see how the wisdom is being played out here? But that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses had throughout many generations those who preach him in every age being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. It's a beautiful picture here. And you notice it's based on the Bible, clarified and applied by the spirit of prophecy, and then acted upon by the ecclesiastical authority of the church leadership. Verse 22 continues, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, I like that part. It's like, we heard that they were saying this. Let's be clear. They were not speaking on our behalf. That was not an official declaration. That was just dispute. We hadn't discussed it yet. Okay? That didn't come from us. Verse 25. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Notice they, they beloved, they pulled together, they rallied behind Paul and Barnabas. Keep, keep that in mind as we go later into the week. But at this point, they love Paul. The Holy Spirit has done a great work on this day. Men, it says in verse 26, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who will also report the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to us, I'm saying good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Notice this is a spiritual thing. The Holy Spirit was in the room to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. So notice there's no burden at all. There are necessary things. There is a change of life that's needed when you convert to Jesus Christ. That's still the truth, amen? We talked about that. Discipline, you've got to change. You've got to 
apply biblical principle in your life. And he lists them out, the ones that were pertinent then. That you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual, sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. That's simple. Friends, I believe there are important lessons today from the experience of Acts 15 and that particular doctrinal dispute. I think that Satan is going to do everything in his might to try to divide and discourage God's remnant people, try to thwart the mission, to get them to have no small dissension and dispute as they seek to do the work of God just before the coming of Jesus. There's a reason Acts chapter 15 is in the Bible, and I believe it's for us and our children who will live to see Jesus come. Important lessons for today. There are several, but I'll go through them briefly. Number one, church order. Difficult matters are to be discussed and decided upon for the whole church. Territories are not free to act out of harmony with the judgment of the duly assembled representatives. We read in Acts of the Apostles, speaking of Acts 15 experience there, in that first Jerusalem council, page 195 of that book, Acts of the Apostles, the four servants of God who were sent to Antioch, sent to Antioch with the epistle and message that was to put an end, I'm sorry, let me say that again, the four servants of God were sent to Antioch with the epistle and message that was to put to an end all controversy. For it was the voice of the highest authority upon the earth. When God's people had assembled with the apostles, the elders, the leading brothers, the representative from these churches, and they prayed, they discussed, the Holy Spirit was poured out, and the decision they came to was respected by all churches because it's the highest voice of God upon the earth. Friends, the church is neither a dictatorship where one man just has one opinion and it goes down the chain and you have to obey. Nor is it a democracy where everyone gets to vote and whatever you think. No, 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 no. The church is a Bible-based, spirit-driven republic. It's a representative form of government. It's the one the Lord has established for his people and it has guided us through to this point. Acts of the Apostles, page 195, 196, continuing, says, The council which decided this case was composed of apostles and teachers who had been prominent in raising up the Jewish and Gentile Christian churches with chosen delegates from various places. Elders from Jerusalem and deputies from Antioch were present, and the most influential churches were represented. It continues saying, The entire body of Christians was not called to vote upon the question. The apostles and elders, men of influence and judgment, framed and issued the decree which was thereupon generally accepted by the Christian churches. Right, so not everyone voted, but the decision that came down was supposed to generally apply everywhere. No matter how strongly the desire of some, after the Jerusalem Council, no territory of the world field could mandate circumcision for new believers. You couldn't have a church over here that says, oh, we're a circumcision church. Oh, we're not a circumcision. No, 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 no. Nowhere could you mandate that converts be circumcised. Couldn't do it anymore. While circumcision itself was not outlawed, let's be clear about this. 
And anyone who decided to voluntarily partake of that rite could freely do so, as we're going to see in Acts chapter 16. If you want to study ahead, that's where we're going to be going tomorrow. But after the decision of Acts chapter 15, no locality could set a standard of church membership in variance with the will of the world body that was then assembled at Jerusalem. Friends, we need to be a people of church order. Point number two. The role of the spirit of prophecy in clarifying doctrinal questions. Still in your Bibles, go back to a text we saw yesterday. We spent a good deal of time there. In Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. In Ephesians chapter 4, starting with verse 11. What is the role of the spirit of prophecy when it comes to issues of doctrine? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes of those positions and leaderships and ministries that the Lord has established in his church, and it says in verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, which was all what was represented here in this Jerusalem council. And it goes on to say, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the what? Of the faith. Notice it's prophets here that contribute to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14 particularly, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of what? Doctrine. What is the purpose of the, not only the church, but the spirit of prophecy guiding the church? To make us not be children anymore who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. The purpose of the spirit of prophecy is not to replace Scripture, but to clarify and apply the Scripture in our lives. What if Peter had not had the prophetic experience and insight to share with the council? How did the council regard Peter's prophetic gift, by the way? Notice when he spoke, they were quiet. Did they see it as authoritative in matters of faith and practice or just another man's opinion? Friends, that's the whole purpose of the spirit of prophecy. The Lord imparts the spirit of prophecy for just such occasions, not to take the place of Scripture, but to be a guide as to the proper understanding and application of Scripture, to give us clarity so we can move forward. Friends of the remnant, I'm just going to tell you it like this. Ellen G. White's counsel is not merely devotional reading to be accepted or rejected as we determine. The writings of the spirit of prophecy are the very voice of Jesus to his people and should be regarded and heeded as such. Point number three, Christianity supersedes ethnic culture and personal preference. National uniquenesses, cultural peculiarities, and personal opinions should be sacrificed if they in any way create a stumbling block to Christian unity. Now there's absolutely nothing wrong with national pastimes or cultural flavor or personal preference, But if those things ever take precedent over the teachings of Scripture or the counsel of prophecy, they must be surrendered for the cause of Christ. Point number four, we need courage to stand for the truth. The position, if you notice, that won the day in the Jerusalem council began as the minority opinion. It was Paul and Barnabas against the local leaders, against even the apostles and brethren, But both Peter and Paul 
had been harassed by their own Christian brothers regarding their behavior among the Gentiles. It would have been so easy to placate their Jewish friends by throwing the Gentiles under the bus and caving on the circumcision issue. Okay, okay, fine. Let's just make everyone be circumcised. But that kind of cowardice is not what God requires of His servants. Friends, spiritual courage, that determined resolve to be true to God regardless of circumstance is needed among us as a people as now as never before. You know the statement well, education page 57. The greatest want of the world is the want of men, men who will not be bought or sold, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by its right name, men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole, men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. And finally, let's never forget point number five, the converting power of the Holy Spirit. Notice what it said in Acts 15, verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. There was a great shift in the attitude of the attendees at that meeting under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Their attitude had moved from just smashing their conflicting ideas together in an echo chamber of diverse opinions to being open to the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit as it spoke to this issue. Sketches from the life of Paul, page 209. The Spirit of the Lord then witnessed to the word spoken, and under its influence, the council yielded their prejudices and expressed themselves in, as in harmony with the position of the apostle and sent an address to the churches to that effect. Friends, it was only the, the surrender to the Holy Spirit and His influence in that meeting that changed the course of history. And friends, the same Holy Spirit is available to us today. Friends, we need to press together, press together upon a clear thus saith the Lord and by the leading of the Holy Spirit, now more than ever before. And of course, Acts chapter 15 closes with missionaries headed off with decree in hand to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm going to ask it again. Has our presentation been clear this morning? Did it make sense? God bless. Praise the Lord. Friends, the lessons gained from the experience of that first Jerusalem council are desperately needed in the church today. We need a church full of converted, faithful members who respect the organization of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and will pray for and work with those who have been entrusted with the care of God's remnant movement. We need faithful members who regard the spirit of prophecy as the voice of God to His people today. We need a people. We need to be a people who are willing to sacrifice cultural peculiarities or personal preferences if they in any way hinder the success and advance of the gospel. We need to be a people who will kindly yet consistently stand for the truth though the heavens fall. And we need to be a people who have felt the converting power of the Holy Spirit in our own lives and who by the grace of God will determine to reflect the character of Christ to the world. If that is your desire this morning, will you stand with me as we have a closing word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for so many things, but I especially want to thank you for guiding and directing this church. You truly are the head of the church. 
And Lord, we want to be faithful members of the body of Christ. Help us to learn the lessons from the experience of the early church. Help us to be a people who will stand for the word of God, but at the same time not be so stubborn that we can't listen to the Holy Spirit's leading. Lord, give us that beautiful balance between consistency but not obstinacy. Help us to be both unmovable and malleable at the same time. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We need your Holy Spirit to revive and reform so that we may reflect the character of God. Lord, to that end, we ask that you keep us faithful. And beyond mere faithful, Lord, make us useful for your cause. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.